Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. My next guest is a very interesting person. She founded Bancor, which is an interesting name because it goes back to the 1940s when Keynes decided that eventually we need a supernatural currency or a global clearinghouse between all the different currencies in the world. This was pre-World War II. After World War II, there were some really powerful people that wanted the Bancor. Now, this is over 60, 70 years ago, before cryptocurrency, wanted Bancor to be the global, global cryptocurrency, uh, global currency that everyone used around the world, a clearinghouse. So it's very interesting that my next guest, Gaia Benartzi, she decided to name her project after this. And I'm going to ask a very interesting question in a second. For those who don't know, Bancor was one of the earlier projects that had launched, I believe around 2017, 2018. And Bancor is designed to solve the illiquidity problem that we have in crypto. It's a network that allows people to change from one token to another token without having to rely on centralized exchanges, but at the same time not having to even rely on decentralized exchanges. Rather, the protocol itself allows for liquidity to be passed amongst all these different coins and tokens. Galia, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me and for the warm intro. So tell me tell me about the name because you and I have very similar backgrounds. Um, and you know in, in a lot of cultures, in Judaism, in Islam, and in, in Christianity, the idea of like a global currency is kind of seen as like the the satan the the end of the end of days don't, don't you think that's like it's like calling my crypto satan or something like that don't, what do you think about that um yeah it's a really interesting question and an interesting background that you that you start with and i want to kind of um clarify it a little bit from mine and from our perspective so the story of bancor the original bancor that you're talking about from the 1940s uh, it actually was introduced in 1944, um, and it's a special time because it's the time of a monetary conference that maybe we all remember like vaguely from high school, um, from Econ 101. Uh, what that- high school did you go to? Because my high school did not teach <laughs> economics or finance or anything like that. So I went to a, I went to a couple high schools, both in um, Palo Alto, California, where I grew up, and also in uh, the suburbs of Tel Aviv, uh, where my parents grew up. Um, and in neither one of them did I learn about what I'm about to share, but it did ring a bell for me, um, from early kind of history and, and econ classes, which is the Bretton Woods conference of 1944. So this is kind of a, a global monetary conference that happened not before world war II, but quite, quite during world war II, actually towards the end of world war II and the end of the war is on the horizon. 
Um, and the world powers essentially got together in this town called Bretton Woods, uh, New Hampshire, uh, at a big, beautiful um, country club, essentially a state. Um, and there were delegates from all the allied nations, um, 44 nations, I believe, um, and about 700 delegates, uh, most of them men. Um, and they got together to kind of define the post-war financial order. Why do you need to do that? Well, all the economies are decimated. All of the infrastructure is decimated. Most of the gold is with America because everyone paid America you know, for help, uh, help with commodities, with weapons, with uh, supplies, uh, what have you. Um, those countries have maybe currencies that no one will accept anymore. Uh, you need to you need to make a game plan. You need to make a, a structure. Um, and at this conference uh, at Bretton Woods, a couple really key things were decided on and and um, and stated into the global financial order that that very much still define our system today. So I'll run through a couple of them. Uh, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, was born at this conference. Uh, the World Bank was born at Bretton Woods. The World Trade Organization, WTO, um, was born at Bretton Woods. And maybe most significantly, the uh, U.S. dollar at the time, of course, it was backed by gold, uh, was established as the global reserve currency. Uh, and this, the, the, the concept of a global reserve currency is hotly contested in the crypto space, even the the non-crypto space, because today um, it's being used as a weapon, correct? So a global reserve currency is different than a global currency. And this is where uh, in your intro, when you talk about Bancor, I wanted to make the distinction. Um, you said that uh, Bancor was intended to be a global currency and, you know, isn't global currency kind of anathema to where we're going with decentralization. And um, the distinction is it was intended and the US dollar eventually became the global reserve currency. What does the reserve currency mean? Uh, it means the the one that, first of all, uh, prices are denominated in. It's, it, it's like the benchmark currency, the backbone currency. You can have other currencies, um, but they are measured in relation to their value to the reserve currency. And in fact, the reserve currency is needed uh, for these cross-currency transactions. So um, the, the big battle of Bretton Woods, essentially, um, and that's also the title of a great book by Dr. Ben Steele that I highly recommend, um, the, the big battle of Bretton Woods was, like you say, between um, the Bancor proposal, which was made by Keynes uh, of Keynesian Economics. He was the Treasury uh, Minister for the UK, obviously a big player in this conference, maybe second only to the United States, um, and the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, which was the American uh, devised plan and, and the one that they, they wanted to push forward and the one they succeeded in uh, establishing. And so what's so that, the idea? Yeah, I'll tell you what that means is that um, if the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency and uh, Germany wants to uh, make a trade with uh, America, um, that trade is happening in U.S. dollars. If France wants to make a trade with Germany, the way they measure the franc to the um, to the German mark is via each one's relative price in U.S. dollars. Um, so the U.S. dollar becomes that central clearing currency, if you will. And the counter proposal that was suggested by Keynes was to introduce a new currency. He called it Bancor, uh, a supranational currency, meaning it's a currency of uh, not belonging to any nation. 
every nation still keeps their own currency, the US dollar, the, um, the German mark, whatever it is. Um, but there's a new currency, which is the clearing currency between the nations, meaning um, that the balance of payments, the balance of trade between nation A and nation B um, is being cleared uh, via Bancor or via the U.S. dollar. Um, and what Keynes said, and this is kind of bringing us to modern times of why we named our cryptocurrency project uh, Bancor, what Keynes said was that if you give this uh, international, this um global reserve status to the currency that is also the domestic currency of a specific nation, be it the US or the UK. And mind you, the Brits were coming off of a long legacy of having the pound sterling be the global reserve currency, right? So uh, they have uh, had a lot of experience being being that mistake, if you will, um, that highly lucrative mistake. Um, he said that if you give that power to a specific nation, you're giving them very outsized power in the global economy. You're essentially creating an unbalanced playing field because um, that country can now, you know, potentially manipulate its supply. It can potentially inflate its supply, um, but it can socialize to the rest of the, the global players uh, the cost of that inflation because the dependency on the currency for the global in the global markets is so great. So, um, and I think if we look back in this July will be the 75th anniversary of the Bretton Woods Accords in 1944. Happy anniversary. Yeah, um, to us all, really, because the, the global financial system has been defined in, in many ways. There are other parameters, right, in the last 75 years that have come onto the table, like computers, like digitization, like data, like blockchain, um, like sensors. I mean, there's so much going on. Um, but certainly the status of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency has allowed America um, in this 75-year period to really build um, a growing economy um, with with the feature uh, of its money supply um, also being in high demand around the world by nature of its uh, reserve status and also other kind of uh, political and social uh, trust and, and credibility ideas. And that's what's interesting to me. And what I said earlier, it's being used as a weapon. There are countries out there who are actively trying to remove the dollar as the reserve currency, and then at the same time, the petrodollar, which which signifies that all oil transactions need to be settled in dollars. Um, sure, I think because the U.S. has been abusing it. Do you think that's the case? Listen, if you look at the 2008 financial crisis and you say, you know, how did we solve a problem that we had? What was the problem that we have had? It's obviously very nuanced, but just you know, the TLDR on it is. Uh, we we way overextended uh, our banking sector, way over leveraged itself, and then ultimately the buck stopped and had to deal with that debt. Um, and we gave away a lot of really bad mortgages. Right. I mean, we took on too much risk, right? And we we profited from uh, betting against the risk, and then we bet wrong, and the risk um, mm -hmm. overtook the system. And so, what we do, um, generically speaking, we printed four trillion dollars of new dollars. Um, to to make the banks solvent because they're too big to fail, because they're the contributors to political campaigns, because it seemed like the right thing to do, because we didn't know what else to do. So there may be a lot of reasons why we did it, but we did do it. And um, did we suffer massive inflation? 
Did other countries stop accepting the dollar? Um, no. If you're if you're a different country, if you're you know we, we see this around the world, right? Venezuela, Argentina, uh, Rwanda. If you're a different country and you print four trillion units, or you know the equivalent in your currency um, of new money to bail out your over leveraged, highly risky um, you know banking sector. Um, your currency is going to suffer some very tremendous consequences in the global markets. Um, and, uh, you know, you could say that the global reserve status of America and a bunch of other features of America, but that one is certainly one of them, kind of um, insulates, protects, and in a way outsources or socializes um, the costs of bad behavior to other um, players in the global financial system um, because of that unique status. And so uh, when we set out uh, to build Bancor, um, what we wanted to create was a kind of um, currency We wanted to revive the actual Bancor idea using cryptocurrency. Yeah, we wanted to create a, um, a, a financial sort of um, infrastructure that was designed uh, for balance, that was designed to kind of constantly calibrate, recalibrate um, to achieve balance in the system to your question about, you know, weaponizing and, and things like that. I think what we're seeing play out, uh, and again, this has many nuances to it, but what we're seeing play out is a, a great imbalance, right? When, a, when a, one country is so imbalanced uh, with other countries, then you get, you know, you get the 99%, you get Occupy movements, you get the calls for a new Bretton Woods, you get the calls yes. to replace the global currency with everything from the Chinese um, national currency to gold, to Bitcoin, to, you know, just anything else. Um, I think one of the challenges with these cries for, um, for change is that often what they're suggesting is more of the same. Right. Should it be the U.S. currency or should it be the Chinese currency? Should it be the Russian currency? Should it be gold? Should it be Bitcoin? And I think the Bancor idea uh, and what the Bancor idea was kind of inspired us to think about was, can it be something better? Can it be something that's that's decentralized? Can it be something importantly that's not for profit? Can it be something that doesn't by its very nature of being They're the very hub, good questions. center, you know, backbone currency of the system? doesn't by default give some, you know, really imbalanced benefits or really imbalanced deficits um, to different players in the ecosystem. And now we created the Bancor token and the Bancor infrastructure protocol and infrastructure, not, uh, you know, for to, to, to play Keynes and try and implement a global, um, you know, supranational currency for all the, all the nations to jump on board with. We looked at a more kind of, personal use case uh, to something near and dear to us, which is in the in the bottom up economy, if you're creating, so you're taking a lot of different, you're taking a lot of different um, ideas, and thoughts, and wants that have been asked or um, spoken about with fervor since the early days of Bitcoin since 2011. And, and some of those thoughts are a lot of people in the early days, like myself, got involved because of the crypto uh, anarchist movement, through the libertarian movement, through some of part of the anarchist movement. And the idea is to basically create, uh, allow Bitcoin or crypto to be this global settlement cryptocurrency. So that's one idea. And that's that's an idea that you've had. The second idea, and, that, and I'm happy you touched on it because I was trying to get to it, was 
your Bancor bypasses or transcends, I like that word transcends, transcends the Fed. Your your idea, your project, Bancor transcends governments and it allows that settlement currency or the settlement network to be used by individual people and not needing to be delegated or abused or manipulated by respective governments. And it's not because we don't want to have to trust these governments. They're good at whatever they're good at. But if we can bring it down to a personal level by the, you know each person, me here in America, doing trade with someone in Zimbabwe or someone in China and being able to access or utilize this global settlement layer, it could potentially solve not just trade or banking, but it could solve world peace. Why not, right? <laughs> Why not? Um, yeah, I mean, you've got it. It's a, it's a bottom-up approach. So it's basically, it comes back to the question of what is money at all? And why can't people just create money? So uh, the folks behind Bitcoin, maybe you know them, maybe I know them. Um, they created Bitcoin. Now we look back, Bitcoin is money. Uh, it's not as liquid as dollars. It's not as you know well known uh, as gold, but um, it's certainly on its way, and it's certainly usable as money. There are many many places where you so can is that is that a, a problem though? And you can get the thing that you want. Um, is that a problem though? Because it became no, money, it can't a, be a it's settlement. It's not a problem layer? at all. You know, it, it may have trade offs like like you're describing. It's not a problem at all. What I mean to say is that Bitcoin, from our perspective, and this was Bitcoin really inspired us to to then create Bancor. Bitcoin was the first user generated money in history, in modern history. It was the first money not created by a nation or not created by a multinational, like a, you know, a corporate, like think of uh, airline miles or other things uh, that are issued that can then be traded um, for goods and services or for other money. It was a social experiment. Bitcoin was, is the largest socioeconomic experiment the world has and ever so seen. And so the question that we asked ourselves was, um, okay, how does, how does this scale, not how does Bitcoin scale, though we hope Bitcoin scales as well. And, and, um, and, and it's a, a huge part of our, of our education in, in this space. Um, but how do more people create more money? How do, how do we remove the monopoly power of money creation from wherever it exists today, whether it's uh, feds, you know, central banks, um, or corporates, centers of any kind? How do we give the power of money creation to the people? What is preventing people from creating money? And what we understood was that this liquidity between money is the problem. Why? Because unless your thing, your money launches with the ability to be global ado globally adopted, like everyone knows it, or even just nationally adopted, or even outside of your like friend group adopted, your money isn't very valuable. Your money is um, is more like barter. Your money is more like uh, social capital between some people who like each other or like the idea or like the project or like the restaurant. But in order for your money to actually be money in the way we conceive of money, that it's a, you know, a token that can be redeemed for goods and services from society, even if that good is a different token that you may may want in order for it to be money it's got to be liquid to other monies or else we're always going to be in this chicken and egg game that like you know the money isn't adopted enough to be money so it's not money and so our question that we asked was how do we allow small new custom niche monies 
to actually be money in the system, uh, we need to create a kind of neutral, not-for-profit, um, decentralized infrastructure that will allow any currency to have sort of a rational, and by, by rational in this case, we mean mathematical and transparent um, exchange rate to other currencies where you don't need to go down the path of biz dev um, or agreements between nations uh, or agreements between companies like that's not a that's not a scalable system as we know and so and you need and, adoption yeah, and so that's how banker was born is how do you get adoption when you need adoption to get adoption how does money become money when you need people to believe it's money in order for it to be money um, and that was the question that we were that we were asking ourselves and, and trying to solve for and the Bancor protocol was really born to separate liquidity like the moneyness of money from volume the adoption or the trade demand um, for money today the moneyness yeah of the money. moneyness of I money like needs to be separate from the volume or the demand I'm that down. Um, for that money and that's not to say that we wanted to create a system that would allow shitty shit coins to be money oh. Some of those shitty shit coins are sponsors. <laughs> this episode is sponsored, but I'm just joking. Bless I'm just them. joking. Speaking of adoption, though, um, yesterday was Adopt a Dog Day. And I was a little late today because I was walking my puppy and we just adopted a puppy um, seven months ago. And he's he's adorable. And you have a puppy <laughs> as well. It's true. She's not such a puppy. And I wish we were on video uh, so that you, like every other video cast that I've done, can see that we live here in the office together. Um, she's six years old. Negev is her name. And it's funny that um, that you bring it up. No one ever voluntarily brings it up except me, always. Um, I love yeah, the name. Yeah, it's the name of the Israeli desert, of the desert in the southern part of Israel, which is a very, like, but it's very symbolic. It's a very symbolic desert because it used to be a lot more deserty, and now Blooming. it's it's growing. Blooming. There are cities, that Israel, and it's kind of symbolic. And I don't know, did you you named Negev before you started Banker? Correct? Yeah, I named her. So the story with Negev is that I moved uh, to Tel Aviv about seven years ago. I was a venture partner uh, at Founders Fund, Peter Thiel's VC. Um, firm in San Francisco, and I came to Israel to look at the Israeli tech deal flow um, and build the bridge uh, to over here. And about a year later, um, decided to stay in Israel and only visit San Francisco and move back to the build side and only have uh, venture invest in in my uh, business and the Bancor founders and, and myself previously built a company um, at that time called AppCoin that was really starting to um, pilot these um, these custom monies, these user-generated currencies. Um, and I adopted Negev around that time just to be my bud, my buddy, and my um, she quickly became kind of my ambassador in a new city and I walk around everywhere. She's Love awesome. It. And the name is actually... Um, because of her color, she's like this kind of yellowy brown, which is the exact color of the desert in my eyes um, here. And so that's negative for you. But it's a, it's funny that you bring her up because you had asked me about stories um, and kind of like personal stories. So here goes. I had actually a really expensive morning uh, because of negative. 
um, walking her around. I, I tend to walk her off the leash. I have a really difficult time with the, the leash concept of like tying her like that. It just feels, um, it feels so unfair and uh, to both of us really, but to her more. Um, and so I, I tend to walk her off the leash. And in Tel Aviv, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of great things about Tel Aviv. Maybe this is one of them too, but you're not allowed to walk dogs off the leash, obviously. And they're pretty adamant about it. Um, and they walk around and give you uh, tickets and I still do it. I walk her off the leash, let's say 95% of the time. Um, and when people ask me about it, um, how do you do that without getting tickets? Why do you do that? Oh my gosh. Um, I always say to them, uh, it's uh, we don't often get tickets, but sometimes we do. And when we do, um, I consider it uh, the freedom tax. It's a freedom tax and freedom isn't free. And um, in the scheme of things, I'm uh, and I'm fortunate that I'm, I'm able to make that uh, calculation for myself on my priorities. But I um, I I pay uh, for the things that I uh, believe in, and I believe that Negev should be able to walk up the leash if she can be safe and keep other people safe. And I pay that freedom tax. I often say that to people. And then this morning, I'm walking her off the leash, um, and I it's that moment and they descend on me. It's like a very, uh, Israeli, Israeli ops moment. Um, and oh, they, they came, came down, down on, on us. Yeah. And, um, for the first kind of few minutes, I, I resist, <laughs> I resist and I, I explain and, you know, I just hurt my, I just dislocated my shoulder and I just had to get her off the leash for a second. Cause she was pulling and like kind of starting that sob story of why you shouldn't give me a ticket. And, um, and I really had a, it was, I really had a moment with myself where I reminded myself, I remembered that I often say I pay a freedom tax and here they are in this moment to collect the freedom tax. And I'm, uh, you know, making up stories here of why I don't have to pay that tax, but I still want that You're freedom. debating it. You should just accept uh, and, it. And uh, I had a really quick switch over to, here's my address, <laughs> here's my ID, here's my name. Um send me the ticket, you know, and, and it was such an interesting moment because I think about this a lot, um, just integrity, you know, and, and it's fine to make the decision to yes, do the leash or no, do the leash or yes, pay the tax or no, pay the, whatever you decide, um, is cool. But the consistency of integrity, if you take pride in, you know, the way that you quote unquote, get away with this or the way that you handle this is by doing X then freaking do X, you know? Um, and don't make the, the guard feel bad about his job because he caught you doing the thing you know you're not allowed to do. You chose to do it. Um, you know what the cost is. You said you're willing to pay it, so pay up. Um, Steve Jobs had a very similar attitude. Um, may he rest in peace. He he would drive around without a license hmm. plate because he didn't want people to know who he was, and he said something similar. He didn't call it a freedom tax, but in an interview he said something like, you know, I don't mind being ticketed because I'm willing to pay for my privacy. Hmm. But it's a very similar concept. Yeah, right? so we're we're probably not exactly the same. Me and um, me and Steve, uh, bless his memory. But it's also funny you bring him up. Um, another untold story is that I grew up a couple blocks down the street from Steve Jobs um, in Palo Alto, um, and my brother and I, who's also my co-founder. Uh, at Bancor and at all of our businesses before, uh, used to walk our dog, uh, our family dog, Houston, we used to walk him in circles <laughs> around around the job's house, um, just, uh, you know, for the chance. 
uh, one Catch day, a not a glimpse for the chance that one day we'd bump into him and we'd pitch him straight up on our business. Um, what would you well, have pitched? So we've been in, uh, we've been in consumer apps uh, for a while, our, our whole career really, which is, you know, 15 years for me or so, 17 or so for him. Um, and uh, our first business was a company called Mytopia and we were making multiplayer games for uh, PDAs, which would eventually become smartphones. So PDAs were like the Palm Pilot, if you remember. The yeah, Palm Pilot. Or, um, I had I had one. M100. A lot of people, a lot I of people had, had one. Had, um, <laughs> oh man, growing up in school, that was a thing. I used to have a a Cybico too. I don't know if people remember Cybico. We didn't have those. I didn't have it those was... personally, but the the Palm Pilot became, if you remember, the Palm Trio 600 um, was the first sure. official kind of smartphone. It was a Palm Pilot that you could also had a huge antenna on it. You could also make a phone call, um, and then it became the Trio 650. And then Windows Mobile um, issued a version of it that had Windows instead of Palm OS, um, and then uh, Microsoft went down that direction with the Moto Q and um, and then Blackberries got colored screens and then they started making phone calls. And and here we have the iPhone. <laughs> and and that was the business that we were in was making. We made the first multiplayer games for those wait, devices. Wait. Was was the iPhone your idea? Because you were <laughs> in that say, space. You're walking your dogs. You're pitching Steve Jobs. This is an untold stories yeah, the, podcast. The story that's Come on. Told is that poker, Texas Hold'em, on iPhone was our idea. <laughs> it was our idea. We actually preloaded. So we had a really successful game called um, Multiplayer Championship Poker, Texas Hold'em Edition. It worked on Palm OS, Windows Mobile, BlackBerry, Symbian, all the platforms. Um, we've had this interoperability mindset in our business um, kind of from the beginning, this cross-platform, now it's cross-chain um, mindset, which Bancor uh, supports as well. Um, and we put that game, um, the poker game on, uh, what do we put it on? We put it on an iPod. We put it on an iPod and we literally, and we put one on a, a trio, like a Palm Trio that was, um, that was, had a SIM card, like was actively an active phone. And we put it in a bag and we wrote him this, um, this extensive letter from his neighbors, you know, dear hero kind of thing. Um, and wow. we put it in a bag and we literally put it um, in his gate. Like, <laughs> so wait, so can I, I want to, what I if wanna, the iPhone had to... these games on it? What if the iPhone had games on it? I need to say something. I need mm -hmm. to say something. Um, so your, you essentially put show. these games on, right? So you essentially put this game on two separate devices. Now, does that mean that these devices, people can play with each other? Yeah, uh, it meant that you could have a, you know, an a eight person uh, poker game where each person at the, at the table was playing on a different operating system. One person. Okay. So do you realize what you're telling me, right? You essentially, and this is what I like to get at in your brain. Since you were a child, you've been, trying to figure subconsciously your your life goal it seems like is to solve a similar problem so here you are a long time ago solving a problem of illiquidity of poker players on one device so you said instead of having one device be the main device where people can play poker on i'm going to allow poker to be played on eight 
different devices. device. And this was the pre-smartphone era. This was pre-iPhone. So this wasn't something that was even conceptualized back then, correct? So here you are and you take this concept and you solve it. Sorry. You solve the problem. You put it in a manila envelope. You mail it to Steve Jobs. And then the and we said in the note, what what if the iPhone had these games on it? And um, and actually the iPhone launched, if you remember, like the first iTunes um, version of the iPhone, the, the first version of the iPhone that had iTunes on it and that had the downloadable app store, um, had a few apps from Apple that were made by Apple, just a few. And one of them was Texas Hold'em Poker by Apple. Wow. So... <laughs> So now you buy Apple, right? So you've, you've essentially, the concept of Bancorp, you essentially applied it to a different, whole different sector before cryptocurrency really even existed. So now you took the same problem that you, 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 you focused in, in crypto and you, you looked at that problem and you said, I'm going to solve it the same way I solved the, the problem of interoperability on very smartphones with playing poker. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that insane? Like how you, it's like such a good crossover. Have you ever thought it's about insane. that before? It feels insane sometimes. Um, I don't think it's insane. I think it's um, consistent. And the thing that we have always kind of looked towards and that has always informed, I think, um, our work and our life, I'll speak for myself maybe, um, is collaboration is interoperability is connectivity between but this people. is not just collaboration this is a very specific but it's that but it's solution that, um, it's, a... it's that interoperability um that is the the flavor of life if you will that is culture so as someone who grew up in palo alto in the 90s um also in the 80s but also in the 90s um you know you you feel this internet grow up with you and and you feel both the kind of promise in terms of what it said to be able to do. And then you feel also the reality of, of what it actually does. Um, and I think that informs our work uh, a lot as well, right? There's this promise of, you know, everyone, everyone can connect, uh, bringing knowledge, uh, you know, democratizing knowledge across the globe. And then there's sort of the commercial reality um, of the internet or of any of the platform wars, you know, and, and I'm talking even of, of an intranet time before the internet. Um, and, and the reality is a little different. I think that that's what makes us so excited about uh, blockchain and decentralization is that the people who grew up and kind of watched some of the pitfalls of that industry are the ones at the at the wheel um, at this at driving and also financing and also regulating and also all the things um, in this industry. And we have an opportunity to kind of really upgrade um, how this works. So when I say collaboration in that case, what we meant is that a good poker game is not limited to only people who have Palm OS pilots. Um, a good poker game is a collaboration of a bunch of different people. When we look at Bancor, and by the way, after, after uh, Mytopia, we made another business um, called Particle Code, which actually brought that interoperability between the smartphone platforms to other developers. So in Mytopia, we made our own games on that platform. And at Particle Code, um, we let other people make their content on that platform. There's a lot of other apps beyond games that could use this kind of cross uh, OS interoperability. And now if we bring it forward to Bancor, you know, the idea is... Um, everyone can make a currency as long as there's interoperability between them, as long as they speak the same language. It also is very sort of protocol in its nature. And 
um, in Silicon Valley in those, you know, the 80s and 90s, the protocols that we take for granted today, TCP, IP, and HTTP, and SMTP, um, they, uh, they were built in that place at that time. Uh, that was the language. I remember my dad had a, um, he would always go to business trips and conferences, and he would bring me back, like, what then I called a gift, and now I call conference swag. Um, and like, yeah, he got me this shirt. I remember what was conference swag. About I'll, I'll tell you exactly. And it's, and it's, uh, it's almost embarrassing, but it was, um, there was this shirt and it said parlez-vous SMTP. Um, because the conference was in Paris and it had this Eiffel tower and, uh, they were pushing SMTP as, you know, the, the protocol for email. And, um, that's what it said. And like, that was the shirt and I wore it all the time. I want that shirt. I want <laughs> yeah, that shirt. Anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's that shirt and it's the Synoptics shirt and it's the 3Com shirt and the Bay Partners shirt and the Oracle shirt. And, and um, you know, that was the, the language of the time was what is the language of the Internet? What is the interoperability standard that lets everyone uh, plug in? And that's really what we think a lot about at Bancor in terms of the protocol and what I think of in terms of collaboration, because if you go one layer down from the Bancor protocol as a interoperability network for tokens, and you actually zoom in to any one token, tokens are interoperability tools for communities, for groups of people. That's what money is. Money is a technology that we use to collaborate. If you were alone on an island, just you, um, you would not need money and you would not use money and you'd not care for money. Um, if, even if you were there for a thousand years you know, you know, and you were able to survive a thousand years, it was just you, you would never in those thousand years make money or use it or care for it or think about it because money is for interoperability between people. It's how we uh, cooperate, literally how we coexist. And when we can trade with people and communicate with those people without having a centralized or another larger institution like a government telling us how to trade or what to say or what to think, we will eventually stop hating those people, no? Well, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I can say that, um, you know, if you believe in uh, freedom and if you believe in people that like the, the, the base nature of people, um, if they can be, if they don't feel threatened, if they don't feel scared, um, is uh, to be good or at least to coexist or live and let live, um, then, yeah, you want the most interoperability possible. Also, if you believe that so much of our, our problem and our challenge comes from essentially uh, power struggles, uh, then the more you can reduce these uh, inequalities of power, the more you can um, you know, change the leverage game so that people are on the same uh, playing field, um, I think the less uh, struggle you'll have on, on that front. It's thoughts like that that eventually give me the strength and help me sleep at night knowing that there's a possibility that we're involved in that coming together of, of the people and allowing us to all uh, stop hating each other. You know, um, we had, you and I have very similar childhoods. Uh, like you, my, my parents, um, my parents unsuccessfully tried to, to make, to make Aliyah. We, we talked about it. We spent a lot of time back and forth in Israel. I went to some schools. I went to Yeshiva <laughs> in Brooklyn. Um, so we had pretty so, different childhoods. <laughs> Yeah, right. But, um, well, your parents actually did it 
Um, well, first of all, we're reverse actually commuting. Did it. Um, you know, my, my parents came from Israel to America. Yours, oh, they came yeah, from Israel maybe, to America. For, and also, California and New York, you know, let's talk about, uh, you know, apples and oranges. <laughs> East versus West. But you did you did what I've always mm-hmm. dreamed of doing. My dream was to make Aliyah. In fact, I I tried many times and my parents would hide my birth certificate and things like that. <laughs> so I couldn't I tried actually I walked in. I, I was in Israel and I walked into the office of the IDF and I said, I'm ready. Like I want to enlist. I was twenty years old. Um and my parents wouldn't send me my my birth certificate because they didn't want to let yeah, me do it. Yeah, you can, under, you can um, understand, was my... you know, parents not wanting uh, their children in, in military but it was conflict. The... Sure. Um, but it was more of wanting to be a part yeah. of something. You know, the feeling of wanting to be a part of this greater movement. Did you have any of that growing up? Yeah, definitely. I I love uh, living in Tel Aviv. I absolutely love it. Um, I grew up in Silicon Valley, also a great place, obviously, to live and to grow up. Um, and I've never looked back, not even a day um, since moving here. I, And it's not without its problems. There's tons of problems anywhere you go, certainly in the Middle East, certainly in Israel. Um, but I think when it comes down to it, these are the problems I want to have. Um, and it's a Tel Aviv specifically is a really great city, great weather, great food, um, great beach, really walkable, very dog friendly, um, amazing industry. If you're in fashion, you can do great work here. If you're in uh, business and you can do great work here, if you're in technology, you can do great work here. If you're in um, 3D printing, like everything. What gave you that connection is very thriving here. I think that. What gave you that connection? You you traveled a lot probably when you were younger and but eventually you made Aliyah, you moved to Israel. Why? That's what I'm I trying think to get. That, um, the Silicon Valley uh, upbringing makes technology kind of the the language uh, of progress, the language of our generation. And, and the progress can be good and it can be bad for sure. But it's certainly um, progress and change. Um I think that that language uh, led me to kind of discovering a bridge between uh, Silicon Valley and Israel. I mentioned that uh, I was in that role kind of professionally um, on the venture capital side for a moment and um, kind of that uh, connection between the uh, sciences and the innovation in Israel and then the capital and the markets um, in California always felt like a really uh, natural bridge uh, to build. And yeah, I love, I love the story of, uh, of the collaboration, um, of these people. I get a lot out of, uh, Jewish wisdom in general, even though I'm not, uh, uh, practicing, uh, I don't practice, uh, religion very, um, very Me neither. And, but the, a lot of the concepts you, a lot of the concepts you talk about are similar in old Jewish wisdom, like the whole kibbutz galiot, you know, bringing back together of yeah, all the tribes and, and, and light unto nations and things. Though I will say that I think every nation um, can and and should and in its way does bring light unto nations. And I think that um, uh, the 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 wisdom that you find that I find in Judaism, I think you you can find it also in Islam. You can find it also in Buddhism. You can find it also in uh, indigenous cultures and. In fact, that kind of sacred indigenous uh, wisdom is uh, is something that I'm learning a lot about lately and, and really welcoming into my life and welcoming into these conversations um, about economics and about kind of healthy collaboration. Give me an example. So 
the really untold story um, is that I'm uh, I'm hosting there we <laughs> I'm go. hosting a Redux uh, of Bretton Woods of the Bretton Woods um, Accord uh, or the Bretton Woods uh, Conference in July, and my my aim at such a gathering is to really um, bring very diverse voices to the table and ask ourselves sort of where we're at uh, with economics and uh, and where we want to go. Um, and, and what does a, a human economic system of the future uh, look like where it's, um, you know, win-win and additive, where it's in a sustainable, healthy relationship with the resources that we have on the planet um, and where it's in line with, uh, with our ethics, uh, whether those are around inclusion, fairness, um, health, well-being, um, things like that. And so, you know, what begins as an economic conference with you know, let's uh, let's hear from wh- whoever it may be. Take uh, uh, a Larry Summers or a um, Eric Weinstein, or you know these these voices in both classic economics, modern heteroeconomics, as they call it. Um, let's also get a um, a sacred instructions. Let's also get um, uh, Sherry Mitchell is, is her name. She's a Native American um, legal activist, and she wrote a book called uh, Sacred Instructions, How to Bring That Wisdom um, to Change Making. Let's talk about uh, The Chalice and the Blade, um, a book also that I love uh, to recommend, which looks at kind of feminine and masculine models around uh, coexistence, uh, domination versus uh, nurturing or collaboration. Um, and, and they don't have to be exclusive um, they can certainly uh, exist together. Um, they need to be balanced. And the interesting thing about balance is that it's a constant aspiration, right? Because the moment it, everything is moving, and so the moment you get to balance, you begin to get out of balance in a sense, right? It's like the moment we got tech that made us uh, more efficient, we got over hyper efficient and like don't don't look each other in the eyes anymore. The moment we do this, we do that. Like things, things are very... Um, are, are very fluid and are very much in motion. And so if balance is something that you strive for, it's something that you're always striving for um, in the sense of kind of correct and recorrect. Do you strive for it? I do strive for it. I can't say that I, um, that I feel anywhere close to achieving it as, as you may know, and others in the, in the field know this, these jobs in, in uh, cryptocurrency in startups in general, and, and they're, they're not unique, right? Jobs are hard. Lots of jobs are hard. Um, these jobs are really hard um, and, and, and you can lose yourself um, in them. Certainly. I think that, you know, in the hours and in the global nature of it, and there's a crypto event every minute and um, there's, there's 24 seven media and there's always some, someone attacking you, either you or your tech or your industry or your whatever. Your dog. Um, and you know, there's you today. Well, that's actually the thing is that, um, that walk that I took with her in the morning, you know, that was, that is part of my balance. Um, that, you know, I did that walk and I did it for a whole hour and she was off the leash, but so, I would say, I don't, I don't do it enough. I don't think anyone quite does it enough. I think that it's something um, that I'm hyper aware of and I'm, uh, and I'm always um, striving to improve on. But most people, most people aren't. So you're talking about balance and to be, to be balanced and to be conscious of the need to be balanced. You know, the think of five spokes in a wheel of a bicycle, right? You know, if one, if one spoke yeah. is off, then the whole chain falls off. 
to be balanced, you need to be grounded. Mm. My question to you is, it seems like to me that you are pretty well grounded. Do you feel like you are? And if you are, what in your life has given you mm. that grounding? Um, you talk to you talk to drug addicts, you talk to former addicts, you talk to alcoholics, you talk to anyone who's been through a very traumatic event in their life, good or bad. Um, and it's something like that that's their grounding moment. For me, it was getting handcuffed at JFK Airport and then going through the justice system, serving 18 months in prison. And that's something that I'll always, until I'm 120 years old, I'll always remember that as, hey, don't do something stupid because that can happen. Was there any moment for you like that? Um, am I grounded? Um, I'm pretty grounded. I think grounded is also a personality type. Um, I'm very uh, detail oriented. If you're in details, um, you kind of have to be grounded because you're very aware when details are being, uh, are being missed or overlooked. Um, I think that the balance for me actually comes uh, from the different configurations in my life that bring a little bit more maybe air to the ground, um, right? Because balance is not, uh, for me and my, my conception of it, balance is not about being grounded. It's about if you're grounded, having having air and vision around you. If you're airy and if you're airy and, you know, in the vision layer, then it's about having grounded, detail-oriented people around you. And that's why I say that I think collaboration um, is really the key. And I even made this uh, Facebook status update once, which I don't do often when I came home from a day and just pulled out the phone and, and I wrote, um, and it was during the app coin days, which was a long, a long battle that we fought um, to try to get those products um, off the ground. Talk about early, too early, right? Trying to get community currencies um, off the ground in uh, 2013, 14, 15. Uh, but I wrote, if content is king, collaboration is queen. We have this idea that content is king, and I, I tend to resonate with it, that you know the, the artists and the brands and the, the ones with the content that people, and we see this play out with Netflix and HBO and Game of Thrones and Amazon and, um, and all that, content is king, and, and people want that content. And king and queen together in general is, is a balanced um, construction and, and queen brings collaboration because if you're um, content king, um, but you're, you know, you're, you're alone at the top or you're such an asshole, um, you're not going to get the kind of co distribution and recognition that, that good collaboration um, could get you. And so I think that um, groundedness is great. Airiness is great. Um, you know, fluidity and, and extroversion is great. And, um, and fire and introversion is great. It's all, it's all potentially great. What's the greatest, um, is kind of the balance. And again, it's not equal. And for every one, you know, we're not wheels with five spokes. We're each very unique shape. So balance for, for any of us, um, looks a little bit different, but we know it when we feel it. Um, and I think that's kind of, uh, the guiding principle for me. So at Bancor, my co-founders um, and uh, bless them, you know, everyone brings really different uh, and and really super uh, powers to the table. And hopefully together, the collaboration um, is balanced. And um, I think... What if you guys disagree on something? <laughs> what if we ever agree on something? <laughs> that's a shorter, that's a shorter podcast. Um, 
we disagree all the time. I think that's the that's the the beauty of the beast in a sense. Um, I think one of the best ways um, to fail is to surround yourself by people that agree with you um, all the time on on everything. We certainly have really different opinions about uh, almost everything. I would say the the trick, and and we're by no means at the end of our journey to get there, uh, but the trick seems to be figuring out how to hold space. Uh, for different ideas, even the ones that are the most repulsive to you or the most upsetting to you or the most seem the most just retarded to you. Something actually I wanted to bring up with you in terms of your show and just how we are in our, our industry in terms of talking across ideas. You know, you've got your Bitcoin maximalist and your altcoin enthusiasts and you've got your EOS, um, you know, uh, fans and you've got your, uh, you know, th- there's the, a lot of different ideas what do you call ripple people? What are ripple people? <laughs> well, like I'm you kidding, just leave, you know, you the EOS kidding, fans. Kidding. I was like, um, what do I call them? I, I don't personally oh, no. call them anything. This episode is sponsored by Ripple uh, Labs. And listen, if it were, and you know, that's cool. The cool thing about Ripple or anyone else sponsoring your show is that, you know, that's a collaboration to give the resources for your project to take off um, is a collaboration. And I think that, I'm not yeah, sure, sure. Ripple, I'm it's a you. it's a metaphor, you know, and and in fact, I I encounter this a lot with um with things uh, that I try to get off the ground, and and we talk about a lot in the industry, you know, there were those um there's a lot of people that hate all the speculation that's come into the industry, right? And certainly, all the speculators on all the ICOs and all the tokens, all the markets, um, certainly brought a lot of like um, chaos and a lot of uh, negative side effects, a lot of people getting wrecked, uh, a lot of bad attention in the media, a lot of misunderstanding about what we're trying to do in the space, generically speaking, or broadly speaking, um, certainly brought a lot of uh, negative outcomes, but it also brought in a lot of capital. It also, you know, brought the conversation into the mainstream. Um, And so when people hate on speculators or hate on regulators or hate on um, entrepreneurs or hate on bankers, Anytime there's hate, generally there's a, there's a missed opportunity uh, for a better collaboration. A lot of those speculators eventually become the CEOs of, of our companies. Sure, that's that's one outcome, and um, a lot of the capital that came in is empowering teams that are and will uh, build real tech and and make real progress here. I think one of the really hard things about innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, if you will, is that. Before people know about it, before it works, there's a long, painful, you know, sweaty um, history of it uh, not working, but getting closer to working. Um, and those people don't usually get the credit. Um, you know, Eyal Herzog, my co-founder, one of my co-founders here at Bancor, he's our uh, chief product architect. Um, he had a company in the in the early um, 90s called Contact dot com. And it was basically Facebook. <laughs> it was, you know, everyone's got their contact, like their contact card. Uh, it's like their name and their this and their that and what they do and blah, 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 blah. And between the contacts, you can talk and chat and, and uh, friend each other and, and all the things. And, and there are many, many stories like that of many, many um, products um, and, and innovations and ideas that got us closer um, to Facebook in the, in the narrative, we only know Facebook. And, you know, if, if five years from now, there's some blockchain that you and I don't even know of yet, uh, but it's the one will Ethereum, you know, 
be there within the story? Will Will Bitcoin be there in the story? Will EOS be there in the story? I don't, I don't know. know. I feel like I feel like Satoshi when he wrote the white paper, he did or credit she. a lot of the earlier failed projects in his white paper, um, B Money and Hashcash and um, our our POW, our POW, and a few of the other ones. That was one that Adam back. Uh, no, sorry, our power is the one that Hal Finney had had conceptualized. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, um, it's I think it's one of the, right. the greater the first things about the um, what he or she did. Um, I think that that credit. The first, the first person to walk through the door gets shot. Yeah, the, and the one to run up the hill takes the arrows in the back, and and all the things. And I think it's a really oh, yeah, it's really hard. Um, it's a really hard part of this job. Um, because there's there's no other way to do this job. <laughs> there's no other way to succeed but to fail. There's no other way to invent um, Ethereum but to try, you know, for for years and years and not invent Ethereum until you do. Um, and there's no other way to invent whatever comes next after Ethereum and solve scaling or whatever it is um, without inventing Ethereum and having it not scale yet. Um, and so I think that one of the biggest opportunities we have in crypto and in, in global economics and, and in general um, is learning, and it's kind of an individual and collective uh, process, but learning how to have conversations with people we really disagree with. Um, and I think that technology is making that a little bit harder for us in a way because the algorithms is and it? the feeds, um, which are built on profit profit making, right? They're ultimately trying to get you to click on things and buy things. The way that you are the most comfortable clicking on things and buying things is if you are the most in your comfort zone, if you're hearing things that are the most appealing to you, if you're seeing products that are the most specific to you, if you're getting endorsements or, uh, or positive um, feedback from people that you admire and that you like and that you trust and that you've heard of. Um, and uh, there's some really good uh, TED Talks uh, on this topic where you know, that echo chamber that we're finding ourselves in is actually making it much, much harder for us to talk to people we disagree with, which is where most of the opportunity is to grow and to progress. Uh, I think we see this playing out in our industry between kind of entrepreneurs and regulators. We see it between the, the platform, you know, the uh, crypto tribalism, um, that kind of thing. Certainly in politics, we like cannot have a conversation anymore about different ideas of, of what to do. And I think that that actually, for us here at Bancor, at least, it really reinforces the idea of um, working on interoperability. Like, we're not trying to propose the currency solution that's going to work for everyone. We're trying to propose an infrastructure that allows people to suggest their own currencies. Um, maybe some are centralized, maybe some are decentralized, maybe some are very, you know, uh, equally distributed. You essentially maybe want to some move. are less equally distributed. Maybe you have a currency that's just for teachers, and that's super helpful, um, and that's great. And maybe you have a currency that doesn't know who you are, and that's the beauty in it. Um, we want to encourage. It seems like you creativity. want to move the world. It seems like you want to move the world to a a less uh, top down approach or pyramid like like approach to a more. Um, it's more of a of a web like structure. A web like and, structure. Um, it's how will that change? How will that change the world? I mean, what we talk about that all the time, but like not just with technology, with with cryptocurrency, but if we could change the whole world and how how us as human beings act and react towards things and 
do things and treat each other uh, as humans, how will that give us what that what that world looks like? I think that um, in a way, and this is not an original thought by any means, but it seems that with power uh, comes oppression. And so these pyramid-like structures um, where... I thought you were going to say great responsibility because that's a Spider-Man quote. Um, With power comes great responsibility. Sure, to not oppress, and it seems to not be uh, to not be um, you know that responsibility. Because good intentions are not transferable. Well, because um, I think that the natural inclination is to protect what you have, and if you're in the center and you have the most, then you have that same natural inclination to protect what you have. Um, And I think that. that that oppression is is something that we can change by shifting the centers of power and again not replacing them by ooh you're a bad holder of power let's get a better holder of power in there but by almost dissolving them and not dissolving them into anarchy per se where you know there's lawlessness and there's there's no structure but creating a more um, inclusive system for people to design the system that people live in and live under. Um, And today we have very little choice. I think even to the, even in the places in the world where we have the most choice, right? America, democracy, elections. um, What it feels like to me is even the things we choose, let's say in our voting, we don't actually get right because everything has become kind of a cynical money driven money you know money paid for money holder paid for um circus if you will of promises with no accountability or even if there's an intention for accountability there's no um capacity to execute anything that was promised because of the um the complexity of the system um and so i think we need to basically try and un you know unhook some of these dependencies uh, from each other. And uh, that's something that blockchain seems like it has a lot to offer uh, towards because it allows us to uh, make things more transparent, make things more immutable, program uh, different uh, you know, codes, uh, program other codes, create interoperability between different um, programs and code. And I think that that's kind of what keeps us really excited Uh, about the opportunity that this industry has to play, like you said, a constructive role in moving forward um, is not, you know, do we have all the answers and can we suggest the better leader or the better um, currency or the better system? You want to remove the need for a leader. Yeah, you want to, you want to let people try to lead and you want to let the people who choose to follow a leader um, you know, live in that space and for these different spaces to be interoperable in a sense. You don't, you need to put the kind of the parameters around where one person or group does doesn't impose on the other person or group's freedom. How does that work in real life? Because people are always going to impose. So I, there's this saying uh, in Israel and Hebrew, it's, it's so very Israeli, but it, it goes like this. Um, everybody pees in the pool but nobody pees off the diving board. And what it means to say is that, you know, bad behavior or like behavior that's not um, super positive for the collective um, is a a human feature um, if you don't think you'll get caught. Um, And it's from the littlest things, you know, like parking illegally if if you don't think uh, uh, you'll get a ticket and and onward. 
the when I think of blockchain tech and what it can offer to our sort of solution finding in terms <laughs> of these really big um, systemic problems, I think of blockchain like a diving board. Um, it puts us up on a diving board. It puts our leaders up on a diving board. It puts companies up on a diving board. When you can see things transparently, what's happening, take like, I don't know, departmental budgets for the government. Like, let's put it on a blockchain. Let's see exactly, you know, what is being spent on what. Before we even talk about change, before we even talk about analyzing it or, you know, weighing in on whether it's good or bad, or let's see it. Um, let's see it and let's make it, let's make it totally obvious and totally trustworthy that what we're looking at is the, is the truth. Um, and I think blockchain has a, a lot to offer there. Let's take elections. Like, let's see it. Let's see it clearly. Like, let's know beyond a shadow of a doubt that whoever voted X or Y voted X or Y. Um, let's see it. Let's see the data. Um, that doesn't mean that everyone needs to become, you know, an ether scan expert and, and know how to use all these tools, but you bet your butt that if these things were available, someone would be combing them. Many people would be combing them and that information would rise to the surface and people would get wind of, of much more detail in terms of what is actually going on. So, you know, I don't pretend to have, uh, some scheme in my head for the, the perfect society, but I certainly think that transparency is a major bottleneck. Um, that we have because we don't actually know what happens. Um, and probably half the stuff we know is not actually what happens. Um, and if we can, if, if blockchain can help with that, I think we'll be, you know, 10 steps forward in terms of um, finding solutions. What are the arguments against transparency? Like people who argue say, no, we shouldn't put well, the government budget. Well, on the like blockchain. I'll give you my perspective as a, you know, as a, as a business owner, um, sometimes in a business, you get asked for more transparency, like what do you spend, what do you spend everything on? Um, and there's a really practical problem with letting everyone in your company, for example, know what everything costs, um, take salaries, for example, do you want everyone in your company to know what everyone else's salary is? Um, maybe I'm not saying definitely not, but there's certainly problems, um, that come up there. There's certainly some added energy that needs to go into dealing with a configuration like that. But um, do we want to put our defense budgets, how much we spend on, on. Yeah. So, you know, if you ask me what's like, what's the pushback to transparency, the, the pushback when it exists, I think the high integrity pushback is that sometimes details, you know, the public or anyone knowing details about things is actually counterintuitive to what you're trying to achieve. But who so, gets to decide that? Yeah. I mean, that's the question. And I think who that, I think a big barometer for that is public versus private um, service. So I think that things, you know, that are kind of in the shared domain of like using taxpayer money. Roads, um, things like that. Yeah. Like you're saying, government, government budgets, things like that. I think um, that's probably an, an, an area where we're more likely to uh, fairly demand and, and, and benefit from transparency. Private sector, does private sector need to, be more transparent? I think definitely yes. Um, insofar as they're asking in, uh, the public sector for a lot of support, right? I mean, you want to be totally not transparent? No problem. No bailout, right? And that's that kind of comes back to that, that integrity sort of consistency argument, which is if you're relying on other people to help you or save you in a, in a time of need, then is a balanced relationship with those people is to let them know what's going on. Uh, if you're doing your own thing completely, and there are very few things that we can do all on our own, right? I mean, you 
maybe you're uber, uber wealthy and you can live a full stack life without ever talking to anyone, but your jet is polluting the air that we all breathe. So, you know, we're a society, we're literally social creatures and we're all one thing. Um, so there's not a lot of areas where you're completely off of the shared, uh, the shared ledger, if you will, of uh, where you'd want to balance uh, transparency and accountability with strategy and privacy. Um, but there is definitely a spectrum there, right? Like how you manage your family budget um, is maybe I think not everything so... operates on a spectrum. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and uh, so I think public service, public servants, public offices um, are probably great places to implement higher transparency. When you get into the security game, you get into a lot more um, nuances around what's, uh, what's strategic. I think there are those who would say that the more we share, and that's really scary, the more we share and open up these dark places that we're used to thinking have to be uh, kind of dark in order to, to protect us, uh, there's a viewpoint that says that's that's not right. You know, but it only works it if up, everyone does it. It only works if everyone does it, or super majority of people do it. Yeah, I mean that's the the democratic peace theory, right? Is that uh, only if everyone's uh, democratic and and peaceful in a way does it work? And that's really, I think, where the the consciousness uh, and kind of the the mindfulness movements have so much. Uh, to say and so much to offer, right? Because the more that folks plug into that idea that we are super interdependent, we are one thing in the sense of like one planet, you know, it's one water system we all share. Um, it's one um, biosphere that we're all depending on. Um, the more that we plug into that, I think the less likely we are to overtly abuse um, the system. Um, but certainly that's the, that's the calibration, you know, is how to, how to protect against the bad apples. I think Isn't it we... interesting that human beings, we have this, we have these instinctual uh, things that are, that are, that are programmed in our minds for thousands of years that are counteract each other, not counteract, but are completely like different. For example, you brought up two different ones. Um, one of them is that we're all human beings. We're all together. We're all the same. We all need to work with each other for the greater good. But and that's definitely like a, you know, a known thing that if when the shit hits the fan, we all come together and work together. But then when things are good, we're all fighting each other. But that's also a human instinct. Why? Why is that? Why do we have like these counteract or counterproductive uh, instinctual programmings in our in our in our heads? Well, I don't know how much of it is um, is instinctual or programmed, but it's it's definitely it, it's culture, it's human culture, and, and it definitely evolves and changes over time. Um, the stuff that I read about this that I like and that I like to recommend is um, Spiral Dynamics. Um, Spiral Dynamics by Don Beck is, uh, and it's another example of like a an idea and a thought uh, process that I like to bring to the table to economic. Uh, conversation. Spiral Dynamics basically says that um, we're in this constant calibration, right, of like action and reaction, like, ooh, we were too selfish, now we got to be really kumbaya. Ooh, we're too kumbaya, now we got to be more um, self-interested, right? It's this constant back and forth calibration, but it's not moving like right to left, um, like a pendulum. It's moving right to left, but also forward, okay? So that's the spiral. That's where the spiral comes from. 
And it goes something like this in the, in the first phase of um, humanity where, and, and the, the right to left is like, are we more focused on the individual or are we more focused on the collective, the group? Um, so at first uh, you're an organism and, you know, early evolution. And the only thing you care about is your organism, getting enough food, getting water, whatever, sex, whatever you need to survive, multiply. You only care about yourself. Then you realize there are other organisms. Okay. And now together, like that's your best, best chance of succeeding, of thriving, of multiplying, of growing. So now all you care about is the, the collective. Then you take it. And that's kind of like a very tribal um, like the, the tribal time. Then you realize there are other tribes and those tribes can take your food, take your, take your resources, take your women, whatever. And so now you're very defensive against them. It's your tribe versus another tribe. Then you realize that with the other tribes, you can collaborate. They have spices, you have this. Now you're very focused on like protecting the trade route so it's safe so that the merchants can move from, from place to place because that's good for everyone if we can we can trade and thrive and grow, right? So it's this kind of constant back and forth, but also forward uh, motion that we go through as a society. And of course, not everyone or every group is going through at the same pace, but everyone is going through the same sequence uh, is what Spiral Dynamics uh, seems to say. Um, and where we are kind of right now is in this um, interesting time where if you come off of World War II, um, what we needed then was to create this kind of order, these, these systems that are clear, like we're so traumatized from World War II, I mean, that's traumatizing, right, for many people in many, many different ways. Um, we need now order, we need um, cultures, we need rules, we need laws, and that's when you get into the Cold War, you get into our rules and cultures and laws and ideas and their rules and culture and laws and ideas. Uh, but it's a very systems oriented uh, approach and your loyalty is to the system, right? Your loyalty is to capitalism or your loyalty is to communism. Um, and the next phase that we go into from that is this, what's called kind of the, um, the entrepreneurship phase or like this is the Ayn Rand and the objectivism that phase, which is, you know, the system, whatever, it's great, but it's holding me down. Like I'm a uniquely talented person in this system. I'm a uniquely capable, uniquely motivated, uniquely driven. I should have the right to break out if I want. I should go forward. I should accumulate whatever it is I can and what I want. I should create. I should give. Um, I'm not a system. I'm a person. I'm a, and I'm a damn <laughs> successful person whatever it is to individualism yeah, so where then, are we now so then you go to this kind of entrepreneurship and 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 that this entrepreneurship um you know is the generation of by the way alan greenspan and laissez-faire capitalism let people do whatever that's the best thing for the system the more people do whatever moves them and motivates them the more they're personally incentivized to grow to create to succeed to accumulate the better off we'll all be. That's how trickle-down economics is born, right? If we let the stars shine, if we let the stars rise, they're going to create so much value that it's going to be good for everyone. 
And um, Anne Rand actually is a is a big hero of Alan Greenspan's. He brought her uh, to his uh, inauguration or, or whatever it's called when they um, instated him at the Fed. Um, and then we got 20 years of economic policy, and this like is very apparent in our banking system um, and in kind of deregulating a, a lot of the the financial system, which said, let them do whatever they're good at doing. By the way, you guys, regulators, policymakers, lawmakers, voters, you don't really understand it. It's very complicated and technical, this finance. Um, let them do whatever they want. Um, that will be better for everyone. Fast forward 20 years, you know, you get the financial crisis because turns out that it's that the invisible hand, this invisible self-interest um, doesn't actually uh, pause to look and acknowledge that we're all one thing and we're all one system. If there's tons of poverty at your doorstep, that's actually bad for you long term. So you better invest in your community, even people that you don't like or you don't trust or you don't know. Um, turns out that doesn't actually happen on a, on a systemic level. What, hap what actually happens is that fewer and fewer people accumulate more and more and more. And the culture starts to idealize those people. Um, the Elon Musk and the Zuckerbergs and the, the uh, heads of the banks and, and all of that, that, that idolatry makes that look like success um, and everything else look a little less shiny. Um, oh, and then by the way, someone else will pay for it when they, you know, when they mess up or when they overdo it. And I think that now, in at least in American politics, you're hearing kind of the call for the correction, right? And that can, and that can be the overcorrection. Let's do seventy percent taxes on everyone. Let's let's kind of go backwards to where it's not possible for the stars to rise and shine so bright that they actually burn everyone um, in the process. And so now we're in this kind of. And, and each of these phases, by the way, have massively uh, um, complicated transitional phases where the old cultural system is dying and the new cultural system is being born. And I think where we move from this entrepreneurship phase, which has clearly created a lot of progress, but also a tremendous amount of inequality um, and also a tremendous amount of um, virtualization of value. And by that, I mean financialization. Um, in a sense, right? We have a lot, a lot, a lot of value being created on paper, um, but on the table of people that are much less close to that uh, ledger, we don't have enough food. Um, and that's a, 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 a problem and, a, and a, a real social problem that I think we're seeing kind of all, all around the world. And so this next phase uh, that we go into is by nature and by default, it's the correction phase or the like calibration phase. And that's why I say I think what does that, that look balance, like? balance is something you always strive for and, and never achieve. I think what it looks like is, is kind of upper limits um, on accumulation and lower limits on well-being. Um, I think it mm. looks like, um, which doesn't mean communism, right? It doesn't mean equal. You said, you said before that I thought um, all people are the same. No, people are definitely not the same, but are people um, all uh, valuable? And at, at the very least, are people all... Um, by, by nature, by humanness, entitled um, to have the chance, a good chance at like clean air to breathe and clean water to drink and like a, a safe place to lay their head and um, a healthy uh, possibility of childbirth and all, all the, the rest of the basic things. Yeah, um, for sure. And if we don't believe that, um, then we need to either look at the mirror, look in the mirror and tell ourselves that we don't believe that 
Uh, we need to maybe make a change in, in how fast populations are growing or things like that. It's, it's not the direction I, I think about too much. Um, but I think that upper limits and lower limits are, are certainly a kind of calibration. It's not saying everyone's the same, but it's also not saying do what you will and we hope it all works out. Um, I think that uh, regulation needs to work much, much closer in partnership with the stars of these industries, whoever they may be, in order to really understand the technology quickly and the technologies or the, the, the financials quickly and, you know, come up with the, the right rules that make the game fun to play. You know, I don't think that the financial crisis, anyone would say that, like, the banking game is fun to play. Uh, or even even the people that were succeeding, succeeding the most in it, right? The the heads of all these all these banks, and I think that um, so that's one one thing that it looks like. I think um, you know in, in terms of globalization, uh, maybe it looks like uh, more balance and calibration in terms of what multinationals and corporates are expected uh, to do for the world in exchange for the. Uh, wealth and influence that they accumulate. Um, you know, for example, if you're an American business and you ship and you now produce all of your stuff overseas where the humans for you are much more affordable. Um, and by doing that, you've saved and made your business more efficient and profitable. And yet at the same time, you've also kind of removed yourself from your local community in terms of offering local jobs and local wages. And then you know, there's, there's a, there's a balance there that's needed. Does that mean you can't do it? No. Um, does that mean if you do it, there's a trade-off? Yeah. Um, does that mean that- Like what? What's the trade-off? If, if there's cheaper labor somewhere else- Maybe you pay higher taxes why? in your home country. Why? Um, exactly for that reason that what you do when you say just accumulate profit, whatever you need to do to make the most profit- Shouldn't we want to make focus instead of on penalizing someone for that- we focus on instead here asking ourselves, why am I outsourcing the jobs to somewhere else? And what can I do to make my country more competitive to eventually bring the jobs back? I think you do all of those things. Um, but the 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 reality of, of the race to the bottom on profits um, is that you you move those jobs there because those those people are accepting less money for your work. And so if you say, okay, just be competitive, accept less money for your work, that's fine. Um, but then you need to make food yeah, more affordable. <laughs> then you need to make houses more affordable. Then you need to make, you know, then you need to remove um, subsidies from, from corn farming or whatever. Uh, I think you're definitely uh, making me start to question some of the things that I always thought were true. Listen, I think that's the thing about balance. Everything that you thought was true, there's another perspective on it. It doesn't mean that it's, it's always right or wrong or you're always right <laughs> or wrong, um, but it definitely, um, there's definitely a, a balance to it. And I think the, the real question we should be asking ourselves is what are we aiming for? What are we trying to achieve? Like as a society, as a government, as, a, as an industry, what is it that we're aiming for? What are you for? trying to, and we'll end with this, but what are you aiming for? Like where... When will you be happy with where not only where we are as humans, but where Galia is in the world? <laughs> when will I be happy? Um, next podcast, I'll be happy. Yeah, next, uh, <laughs> tune in next time for when when I'll be happy. I, well, it's I think it's, what, you're you're 
I'll tell you're you. Not a, answer you're your not question. an eternal person. No, answer my question. I, I'll answer your question. Um, when we'll be happy is when at, here at Bancord, so to speak, is when anyone who wants to can create a currency and for their community, for their project, for their next music album, for their things we can't even think of yet. Um, and when those currencies can be freely and fairly traded between people on an open infrastructure that is blockchain agnostic um, and that is mathematically um, governed and that separates volume uh, from tradability and that allows for this continuous asynchronous movement of value between people and between whatever people think is valuable. Um, so that's when we'll be happy. And it's, um, you know, it's not tomorrow. It's not tomorrow that we'll be happy. It's a little further but isn't out. is the journey that. that makes you happy, yeah, not the destination? And, that, and that's exactly the thing is um, when, you, when you strive for balance, and I mentioned it before, and you realize that you never actually get there. You just constantly are have just been there or will, will be there soon. Um, you realize that that's actually, that's actually the game. Um, so we're, we're happy to never pee on the diving board, <laughs> to never pee in the pool. Um, the game is, is to, of course, it's to enjoy the journey. And I would say that we, and I personally feel extremely, extremely fortunate and blessed and, um, and, and lucky to be able to do this work, you know, and I, I do this work because I can, and because I can, I must, um, and that's a really good situation to be in, regardless of, uh, of how it all plays out. Will people ever stop peeing in the pool? No, people won't stop peeing in the pool. Um, definitely not. But people won't pee off the diving board and there'll be more diving boards. Um, and if you want to lead and if huh. you want to get benefits from society and if you want um, people to follow you, then you'll have to get up on that diving board. Claudia, thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.